Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho. All right, we are podcast only this week. It's a long story. No sooner did we make it back to Chicago from various points around the globe to get back live on air than WNUR is doing some technical work over the next month, so that's forcing us to do podcasts. Not a problem. You can still have your voice heard. Leave us a voicemail, 224 2189box 2249269 All right tonight mezzo soprano Kara Dugan goes inside the huddle with Oliver she's a current Steens vocal fellow at Ravinia and she sang a premiere with the San Francisco Symphony under Michael Tilson Thomas in June but first the revolution of Steve Jobs, an opera with music by Mason Bates and libretto by Mark Campbell, opened at the Santa Fe Opera Festival last month. Washington Post critic Anne Majette took that as an opportunity to talk about the way opera is built and to compare it to TV and other art forms. Oliver and I respond to that. And, but of course, you get all your opera headlines and our hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. Yes, we've got a great show for you tonight. I don't need to elaborate. Oliver Camacho, hello. I heard that the Bears lost their preseason game with the Broncos. Isn't that exciting that I knew that? Uh, I guess. I think the only reason why I would care is that I remember that um, Tim Tebow was on the Broncos <laughs> before he became a baseball player. Is he a real baseball player now, or is he just in the minor leagues? He's in the minor leagues. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I he know. really loves Jesus, by the way. I know. I think that's that's his downfall. I think that we're just becoming uh, more and more, uh, I don't want to say atheist, but agnostic and less spiritual society, you know, and he just was too... We don't want to go as far as Colin Kaepernick, you know, and not honoring the... I mean, our religion is guns here, you know, so... Look at maybe you, if... man, dropping names yeah, all I over know. the place. <laughs> Uh, so maybe if Tim Tebow, like, honored guns when he took the knee or whatever, he might still have a career at the NFL. Colin Kaepernick, where are you now? Yeah, I mean, it's the preseason, Didn't he, right? didn't he so, just get picked up by some other team? I, I've lost interest in his yeah. story completely. Oh, I, so I, I love his afro, man. The afro was cool. Yeah. The afro was very cool. Um, but it's the preseason, so the yeah. Bears, there's a yeah. lot of football. You're working on your afro right now, too, right? Uh, this this yeah. is all going off on Labor Day. Oh, no. Start the school year fresh. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? All right, we've got a great show tonight. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. How did we fit Norm Waddell in the studio here in your in your house? Thanks so much, Norm, for coming I by. Know. <laughs> Good old Norm. He's inflatable. Yeah. 
The Revolution of Steve Jobs is by Mason Bates with a libretto by Mark Campbell and opened to huge fanfare last month, I guess it was technically, at the Santa Fe Opera Festival. Oliver, has there been an opera more hyped than I was going to say just that thing, that like the wind-up for this show has been amazing. Whatever PR team, Santa Fe and whoever else has co collaborated on this production hired they did a great job there were so many feature stories about this show before the show even was seen and they put together an amazing team with um mark campbell uh, as the librettist who our colleague and friend math and black happened to interview uh before this went up so you can hear that on doing the work about some of the process of writing that libretto and what's this guy's name who's the composer mason, mason bates, bates. Yeah who supposedly is a big deal. I think we probably talked about him before in one of these prototype or 20th century, 21st century composer themed shows we had. I don't know his music. Um, and then Kevin Newberry was the director. So all we need is to get Mason Bates on this show and then we had the trifecta. The trifecta. Yeah. Well, we need to get Sasha Cook on yeah. this show. She sings the role of um, the wife. Steve Jobs' yeah. wife. Yeah. Yeah. Or ex-wife or something. I'm yeah. a huge fan of Sasha Cook. Yeah, she um, was at COT back in its heyday when um, Brian Dickey was around. And I think she actually was a Steen's fellow, so I might have seen her doing some art song. But nice yeah, connection there. Kara yes, Dugan on the show in about 20 minutes. I know. Way. I could be lying about that, but... Um, Still, like, Sasha Cook definitely is a, a, some. if you haven't heard of her, she's definitely someone to watch. Uh, she's already established, but I think her, she's not a household name yet, but she should be, because she's, she's a great actress, and she's a beautiful woman. Oh, and she can sing. <laughs> We're going to talk about reviews in other newspapers later on in this segment, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. I want to start by saying what excited me about... The revolution of Steve Jobs. And I, I feel like you have to pronounce it that way. The revolution? You have well, because to... it's like R in parentheses. Yeah, it's so... the evolution of Steve Jobs, but and with the R around it. So, it's, so you it's... don't say R? No, I think it is suggesting both when you look at it. Like, where, where the, the title is already suggesting that Steve Jobs goes through his own... He evolves. I mean, all characters hopefully will evolve in the course of an opera, you know? Also, what's weird is when you type in yeah. parenthesis, R parenthesis, yeah. into your word processor, yeah. it auto-quicks to the registered symbol. Oh, really? Which is okay. kind of a pain. I can only imagine okay. the PR department at Santa Fe, like, <laughs> cursing Mark Campbell. If they have Windows, right? Or does it does that happen on your Apple as well? It happens right on this Mac, Oh, okay. Man. So I don't think it happens in, in Windows. Exactly. Yeah. My point is, is that the... Critics for this piece have come from many different publications. Fortune magazine. I'd yeah. not be surprised. Financial Times. Financial yeah. Times. Wired magazine yeah. would not surprise me if they had written a review on it. So, like, it's not just the standard media outlets that were interested and intrigued by this piece. And that there's mm -hmm. been this really broad, universal coverage. That is not a bad thing, right? Yeah. Well, I have to say that, like... Silicon Valley is having a moment, and they've been having a moment forever, but as far as, like, the personalities and the stories out of Silicon Valley, um, I think people are finally starting to pay attention to what those people are doing. I mean, just maybe a month ago on Fresh Air, which is one of my favorite uh, programs on NPR, they were talking about these uh, survivalists who are in Silicon Valley, and, like, they are ultra-rich, 
and you would think that they were sane, but they actually are the ones that are preparing for Armageddon in ways that we would never have guessed, you know? And well like, should they be with the <laughs> madness that is happening with North yeah. Korea and the Trump administration. And then there's the HBO, I know you don't watch TV, but there's this HBO show called Silicon Valley, which is hilarious. I thought you were going to say Game of Thrones. No, I that have too. heard of Game okay. of Thrones. Silicon Valley is a comedy, uh, but from what I hear from, from the tech world, portrays the people of Silicon Valley very accurately. And there's this one egomaniacal CEO uh, who started a, comp a fake company on Silicon Valley called Huli, who seems to be patterned after Steve Jobs because mm. he has like, a, you know, a guru that like it has his own office in their, you know, in, in their headquarters. And he's like always rolling out products and he's like a great spokesperson. And, you know, he's like the face of this giant corporation, you know just like Steve Jobs was, so. Interesting about the opera, of course it's about Steve Jobs, Apple, Apple products, but the creative team did not have the rights to the Apple logo. Hmm. And so there's moments in the show where they're showing... Like quote, an orange? <laughs> <laughs> with a bite out of it. Yeah. But no, there's moments in the show when they're showing, quote, iPhones, which mm -hmm. are clearly not iPhones. Mm -hmm. Apple, I guess, wasn't buying the line that they could have some amazing mm -hmm. product placement yeah. in this sort of piece. Maybe the opera world is already sold on Mac products. So yeah, I don't care. think they need the product placement, but maybe they were smart because we'll talk about the reviews in a couple minutes, but uh, yeah, maybe they knew what they were doing there. What other background is there to say on the opera before we get to the well, key Let's reviews? just be very explicit that neither of us have seen this and we're only talking about this because of its importance on the opera landscape and because of all the uh, you know publicity it's been getting before and after. Um, I guess the thing I would want to say is that we, you can read about what the music sounds like and there's some jazz influence and there's some, you know, use of technology and beeps and bloops, you know, like you would expect, like maybe 80s, 90s era computer noises. Uh, and that Mason Bates supposedly writes in a very, in a style that is very easy for 21st century audiences to digest. It's not atonal. Uh, you know, maybe it's not that interesting, but it at least is uh, easy on the ear, you know. And um, yeah, there was an opera, I forget the composer, but maybe 10 years ago called Death and the Powers, which was the... Todd Machover. There you go. The, it was the, the MIT... Drop it some knowledge. Um, it was the MIT collaboration opera where they had robot... There was like the robot opera. Yep. Is that, is that Chicago Opera Theater? It was, yeah. I actually really enjoyed I that loved piece. It. Yeah. And I love what they did with the stage, and I felt like that, you know, might have been an influence. I haven't, having not seen Mason Bates' show, that might have been an influence on what happened with Revolution slash Evolution. Let's turn to some of the people that did see mm -hmm. the show. I'll start with the Washington Post. Anne Majette, who is one of my favorite critics, actually, she was harsh on this production. And she wrote a related article that we can also get to in the show about how opera is responding to television. But she felt that the music was probably the strongest part mm -hmm. of Evolution of Steve Jobs. And that dramatically, Mark Campbell had really tried to shoehorn some very big ideas and themes into a rather pat opera formula. Um, she says, 
Music is, of course, much of the point of any opera, and Bates' score was certainly the evening's strongest aspect. I wish the opera didn't feel so like a uniform that a talented composer felt obliged to assume. Bates executed arias and recitatives and ensembles with facility, but not, not much illumination. This is, this is a tricky thing. Um, I think when you're looking at Mark Campbell, and, and it'd be great to get his take on it, I'm sure he doesn't agree with <laughs> Anne Majette, but she basically says women remain, quote, cardboard silhouettes, is her phrase, and that overall, that it feels like a message has been laid onto this piece rather than just watching the story of this guy, and that audiences expect some sort of pat and complete, perfect journey of its characters, and like life is messier than that, and that this opera was almost too clean, almost as clean as an Apple product. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of the reviews are getting at the same problem with this show. Uh, apparently it's 90 minutes long and it's about 20 scenes and the scenes are not chronological. So there are some timeline things you have to get used to from the start. Um, Heidi Whaleson in the Wall Street Journal review um, sort of suggests that they, like, like who was that? Emma Jett, like, such as Emma Jett suggested, that maybe they were trying to find the operatic story in this guy's life, like with his relationship with his ex-wife and maybe his own personal growth. And maybe that's not even who Steve Jobs was, mm -hmm. but those were the themes that they found. And then they tried to attach this operatic formula on top of it, even though it might not be, doesn't feel that authentic for such a complicated person, you know? Zachary Wolf in the New York Times was also pretty brutal. He said, quote, there's nothing graceful or seductive about the opera's blustery, earnest jobs. Here, the underpowered, ineffectual baritone Edward Parks. You can't imagine this guy ever making anyone do anything, end quote. Again, hard to say because you and I haven't seen the show. One of these days, Oliver, we're going to go rent a cottage yeah. in Santa Fe, and we're going to do a live week of broadcasts from the oh, Santa Fe be so nice. Festival. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, we need Toby, though. Do you want to move the conversation over to uh, Emma Jett's article? Yeah, about... so Emma Jett, before this show came out, she wrote this article about how we are trying to, as 21st century producers of opera, how we are competing with other media, and she cites TV, and I'll hand it off to you, so it looks like you're almost ready to talk about this. So. Well, this is a great article, I had to read this article a couple times. Mm -hmm. It really struck a chord with me. The uh, dateline is July 28th, by the way. Link is going to be on our website, operaboxscore.com. She starts by talking about evolution of Steve Jobs, but goes on to say, quote, we're in a golden age of television. More shows are moving away from formula and taking their place among other dramatic arts as powerful creative achievements. But she says that opera audiences are willing to hold opera to a different standard which effectively means that the bar is set a lot lower. When was the last time you came out of a new opera, or any opera, feeling that you had a vital, exciting, dramatic experience? End quote. Has that happened to you recently? Um, well, I'll just... I, no, I won't answer your question because I can't think of the answer right now, but I'll, I'll say what she's saying in a different way. Um, opera was created in order to express emotion and to show the kind of, you know, greatest possibility within emotions that music is good at expressing. And to me, music is great at expressing 
passion, sorrow, anger, um, love, you know, uh, tenderness. Um, so those things do very well with opera. And that's why I think a, a story like Steve Jobs' biography, you have to actually look for those opportunities in his biography to put music to them, you know? Um, when opera tries to be, I think, political or tries to be scientific or tries to be too, you know, explore ideas that are very complicated, the music has to match it. And there are some composers who can do it, you know, but uh, doesn't mean the audiences will automatically understand what what the composer is trying to communicate. Majet's contrast is specifically with TV. And she says opera could learn things from contemporary television success that could help make it more dramatically effective to a contemporary audience. One is to not remain fettered by formulas, but rather to transform them as television has reconceived the miniseries. Or Interesting. The so, so it sounds like she had this idea in her mind even before she saw the show. Definitely. Like she was arguing this point. And then so maybe she went to go see Revolution looking to support her argument that she laid out. Well, at the beginning of the article, she does talk about evolution of Steve Jobs. So I think she must have seen it okay. by this point. I'm really into this idea that basically we need to hold opera audiences to higher standards and higher expectations. That opera needs higher yeah. expectations. I think another thing that she's getting at, or maybe you were trying to get at, is can opera surprise people now like is there anything that we can do as you know producers directors performers that will make people think of opera in a different way than they than they already do tv is doing it yeah film is doing it i would argue the straight play theater is doing it so why is it that opera is being how is how is straight theater doing it well, it's it's usually in the material that's being written about, mm-hmm. so the content. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also in the form, right? So ways that chronology is being shattered apart, ways that there is no artifice, there is no wall mm-hmm. between the performer and the audience member. Yeah, I'm not but, super but singing is artificial. You the, know? Maybe this is the problem, yeah. Oliver. So I, I always say that... Um, opera does not I've said this many times before but I'll say it again I think opera and technology do not get along and it's hard for an opera like Steve Jobs Revolution uh, to capitalize on sounds and ideas that are very much part of his career and his life story uh, because opera doesn't like electronic you know doesn't like those noises but the singing voice does not sound good with those things unless you begin to fuss with the singing voice and amplify it or distort it and apparently the principles were actually miked for evolution but they weren't modified yeah they weren't modified in any way you know interesting but uh yeah there are some people exploring like at prototype with how to modify the voice or how to use video installation or whatnot i mean they're in the dance world for example there are uh, choreographers who are doing videos of themselves dancing, but they're editing them in ways to change the chronology. And so it might look like somebody never, like, does a leap and never lands or something like that. So there are things out there, ways out there that, you know, these classic forms of performance are trying to incorporate technology. And I think that's what we have to do is figure out how we can make opera and technology get along. While retaining 
what the true beauty of opera is, which is like the power of the natural singing voice, yeah, singing human voice. And as far as like what stories are people interested in, I don't think that we need to rewrite uh, the formula necessarily for for opera. I mean, look at Game of Thrones. You have never seen it, but it it is essentially a fake medieval history. You know, there's things in it that are fantastic and magical, but like breasts. Dragons. Okay. I don't care about breasts. Um, but, you know, there, there's nothing really that new in terms of, you know, the relationships or... I mean, there are surprises, but, you know, people are experiencing loss. People are, you know, are power hungry. You know, people fall in love, you know. And that is at the heart of of Game of Thrones. And the audience is surprised by who dies, basically. Like, which protagonists get killed when you thought that they were the, they were the protagonists, you know? Maybe that's something the opera can learn. Maybe kill off the title character in the first scene. I don't know. In this article by Emma Jett, she quotes librettist Royce Vavrek, and he says, quote, the mode of distribution of television has changed in a remarkable way over the last 10 years. We need to explore new ways of getting operas out there. Uh, end quote. So, for example, Vavrek is working on a series of short opera movies. Director Yuval Sharon at the industry company in L.A. did this piece, Hopscotch, where... Yeah, it was in cabs. It like was people cars, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Which is so quintessentially L.A., by the way. Yeah, but like, that no means only like two or three people can see it at one time, so... Exactly. So, I mean, although that was a huge game changer... It sounds expensive. It's a huge, it all sounds expensive, and it sounds very boutique. Yeah. And exclusive. And that we don't need that. We don't need more exclusivity. We need more inclusivity in opera. So how do you get opera out of the opera house while making sure that it is available and inclusive to all? Okay, so I'm going to just... Opera block party! I'm going to just take this in a different direction. I will say two things. There was an opera called Champion. Uh, I think it came out last year about a gay boxer... And it had a mostly African-American cast. Uh, Lawrence Brownlee, right? Uh, I don't think he was in it, no. no. Oh. Uh, you're thinking of Yardbird, you know. But that's, that's new. So let's explore new subjects and, you know, represent more uh, people on stage. That's one way. And the other way to me is what I've been doing with my life is looking backwards and finding that the you know, 17th century pieces and early 18th century pieces that were popular in their day and try to figure out what made those things work and try to recreate those. Like Cavalli is a composer that's, he's having a heyday now, but, you know, ask somebody 15 years ago, 20 years ago, who Cavalli was. Nobody knew Mm. except for like some British people, you know, those operas are hilarious. They have drama, they have comedy, they have vulgarity, you know, they were being written for Venetian audiences who, you know, we're going to the opera every day and it was like going to Vegas or something like that, you know, and they really entertained, you know, and let's figure out how to make them musically satisfying. That's Oliver's final thought. Here's my final thought, because I want to get the last word on this. Okay, do it. I don't think audiences should lower their expectations. I think that if we see work we don't like, we should let people know about it and we should not be satisfied with crummy productions of standard repertoire with old sets and old costumes. And I think that, like, it's up to the audience to voice their displeasure and to say, this piece is not moving to me. I want you to give me more. And I think we need to raise our expectations okay. as gonna, an audience. I'm going to add no, one no, more no. last word. No, 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 no. 
Um, we began to talk about this last week. We still might talk about it. But uh, streaming video, uh, New York Times strammed, streamed, <laughs> streamed Anthony Roth Costanzo's uh, voice recital. Joyce DiDonato is also really brilliant at this. And she, and you can find her master classes from Juilliard, etc. This is These are ways for people, large audiences, to interact with performers and feel connected to them. And then we have that douchebag Eric Whitaker who does like the choruses like across the world, like where everybody submits their own and creates some giant choral piece. So there's some ideas here. I don't know how to synthesize them, but you know, opera composers and directors, we need to work on it. Let us know what you're thinking. Opera box score at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just search for opera box score. After a short, short break, Mezzo-soprano Kara Dugan joins Oliver inside the huddle. Stick around. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. At 7, I shower. Every day I wake up... For those caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org slash caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Hey, thanks again for joining us. Opera Box Score podcast version. WNUR is not off the air right now, but our show is, have no fear, we're going to be back live on air in September. But we're going to keep you happy with some podcasts. Oliver Camacho, our creative consultant, has set up this next interview. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, talk briefly before we listen to the interview, which I recorded with Kara Dugan uh, at her uh, extended residence uh, while she's a Steens fellow, the Ravinia um, Young Artist Program. You make it sound like a hotel. It is like an extended stay hotel. They stay in a hotel. Oh, they really? Yeah. yeah. Like a Hampton Inn? That's... Yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Sometimes, I, I think they used to put them in, in uh, homes like the people who donate money, you know, but I think it's just easier to be in a hotel so they can have clean sheets and don't have to talk. Um, Bad so, bugs. So I heard about Kara Dugan um, from somebody who was performing with Juilliard 415, which is the uh, early music orchestra program uh, at Juilliard. Uh, Kara toured with them uh, and did concerts in various places. We might talk about this in the interview. And then she was at Amherst Festival, even though I, and I was there too, but uh, she was in the Cavalli Opera Project and I was in the King Arthur Project. So we never really saw never each other. Never the twain shall meet, <laughs> yes, exactly. Oliver. And I saw her uh, at the opening concert of the Steens Institute, uh, the 2017 uh, song program. So uh, all these things obviously are interesting to me, and I thought it'd be fun to interview her and ask her about some of them. Okay, so I am in the residence inn, the beautiful residence inn, <laughs> uh, that pr is provided by Ravinia Music Festival for the uh, Steens Music Fellows, the Vocal Fellows. And I'm with Kara Dugan. Um, and I have so many questions for you, and we just got to cut to the chase. So uh, we're going to rewind your life back just by a couple of months. How did you become the singer that toured with Juilliard 415? 
Um, it was a really, I feel very lucky that I was able to, to be a part of those tours. I did three international tours with Juilliard's early music group, Juilliard 415. And um, the way, it, my impression of the way it works is that Ben Sosland, who um, runs the program there, sits in for the initial auditions that we have at the beginning of every school year in which they decide um, how they'll cast the rest of the season. So Ben Sosland sits in on those and um, he sort of gets a sense of the singers that he may not otherwise hear. And um, I guess he was happy with what he heard and he thought my voice might be well suited to some of these pieces. So, so they already had their program in mind and they were just looking to cast the right person. That's right, yeah. And, and you were at Juilliard for... I've been at, I was at Juilliard for six years. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. I did my undergraduate degree there and also my master's degree. Oh, so that makes you like in your early 20s. Yeah, right, oh, right. Man. So what did you sing for them? Um, I sang uh, Dido's Lament mm -hmm. from Dido and Aeneas mm -hmm. by Purcell. I think I've heard of that one. Yeah. I, think, I think a few people <laughs> may know it. Um, that's that's a piece I, I really love to sing. It's just so powerful mm -hmm. and so emotional and um, beautiful music, of mm -hmm. course. So I sang that piece, and I also did a piece, uh, Wuthering Heights, from Wuthering Heights, mm -hmm. called I Have Dreamt. Okay. And it's by Bernard Herrmann, who is actually more famous for his film score music, okay. including Psycho. So I, I, I'm the kind of artist who I really am excited to explore different genres of music and different styles of music. And I want that to be shown when I, you know, when I So you have a curiosity for early music and for contemporary music. That's right. Which seems to be a common theme. I just want to underscore I want to underscore that for listeners that um, that those two things tend to go hand in hand. So you got you got cast as the singer that tours with Juliet four fifteen. Can you tell us a little bit about where you went and what you sang with them? The first two I was part of the choir and that was a really interesting experience just to be able to watch and see what's happening and how it all works. And on that first tour, we went to Leipzig and we went to London. We did a collaboration with the Royal Conservatory. Mm -hmm. And so we did a tour over there and that was really incredible. Um, the most recent tour that I did was with uh, Ton Kopman. Oh, wow. And we did... Some Bach, hopefully. We did some Bach. Okay, good. We did Bach's Mass in B minor. And I sang the soprano two solo, nice, which was really incredible. We toured to Boston Early Music Festival, and then we went next door to Alice Tully Hall, and then we went um, and toured the Netherlands, and we did four concerts, um, and it was just incredible. And the difference, the difference of singing in these two totally different places, where music is, you know, in America. Not not ex exactly part of the culture mm -hmm. as much as it is in Europe. And it's really interesting um, w when we went to these churches that we sang in mm -hmm. in Europe, it was just fascinating. These churches were humongous and made of, you know, this beautiful stonework. Yeah, and, and they're old. Yeah. They're so yeah. old and the concert halls would just be totally filled Every and yet, night. And yet those people aren't religious. That's like, right. We're more religious here in America than That's they are. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It was just very interesting. And the churches there were much bigger than I was expecting. And it was just a really interesting place to be singing. It was really, really such a blast. And to work with such high-quality musicians yeah. was also really, of course, very fun.
So then this summer you applied uh, to Amherst Early Music Festival workshop. And uh, that's where we sort of met. Mm -hmm. uh, you were uh, doing the Cavalli Opera Project. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose to go to Amherst and what you felt you got out of the program? Yeah, so I had been doing tours with Juilliard 415 and sort of dipping my toes into early music, mm -hmm. but I really wanted to gather more knowledge about the subject because we didn't have classes um, at Juilliard in which I could study early music specifically. Which blows my mind. It really <laughs> does blow my mind. Like Juilliard ostensibly is one of like the three or four schools that really produces singers of a caliber that when you're done with that program, you're expected to go to the next level right away, you know? Mm -hmm. And to think that there's not preparation for people to learn about early music, it really is shocking to me. I'm not surprised, actually, but uh, I'm just shocked for the, on behalf of the audience. Because <laughs> this is where so much of the work is coming from these days. And mm -hmm. you look at the singers who are still having recording careers or uh, careers that are being documented on video, I mean, they're all doing early music. It's, it's a curiosity to me. And Juilliard now has 415. Why haven't they expanded the program to include singers yet? Like, what's, what's the hurry? I mean, what's the wait? You know? I don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. They were very generous in allowing me to observe some of the guest coaches they had coming through, which was really a treat. Okay, so Amherst. Amherst. <clears throat> so I decided to apply for Amherst because I really wanted to expand my knowledge, really dive in and learn as much as I possibly could about gesture, style, mm -hmm. and ornamentation, and just really dive into the world and really get a sense of what it's actually like to be totally submerged in mm -hmm. early music mm -hmm. and I loved it I had such an incredible time as you know we worked mainly with Julianne Baird and Richard Stone and they were really lovely to work with so incredibly knowledgeable um, it was really great having such a structured schedule while we were there we had master classes we had um, baroque gesture a physical gesture work that we did and we got to work with these um, historic um, early music instruments, which were was is always a treat. It's always just so fun. Yeah, singing with those instruments, I think people realize, oh, I don't have to sing so loud, you know? Yeah, And you can really right. go off the voice, or you can really, you know, make the color to a fast and articulate it, you know, mm -hmm. faster than you would if you had to sing it over an orchestra. And, yeah, I mean, you get beautiful harmony underneath you, but you're never fighting with it, you know? Yeah, and that's something that has been so interesting in my in my studies and now my experiences out of school is when I'm doing early music, it's with these period instruments. And, like you said, you don't have to fill an opera hall, mm -hmm. necessarily. And it's it's just very interesting, and they're totally, totally different approaches I mean, of course, using the same voice mm -hmm. and using the same um, core technique, of course, but it's just a fun way to, like you were saying, it's really fun to just get to play and try mm -hmm. different different approaches to, to how you want to color the voice and how you want to shape it. And it feels almost more intimate, like chamber music. Yeah. And that's what I really love about early and music. It is, I'm so glad you said the word play because it is playing mm -hmm. and you have to explore. And if you actually sing on one level in early music it's boring as f you know? yeah right and you can somehow get away with it in opera because you just need the volume and sometimes like the orchestra is supplying mm -hmm. all the content or sometimes right. just the phrases are so long or so dramatic that like you know if you sing that phrase well it's impressive you know yeah but with early music 
you're not necessarily showing off, you know, the power of your voice. You're showing off the skill. That's of your right. Voice. <laughs> I find that people who do early music, they actually bring some of their phrasing to a different repertoire because yes. it teaches you how to phrase. You know? Yes, yes. That is something I just totally believe in is really touching on different types of music, different periods of music, because they all inform each other. And it's so important to just learn as much as you can from these different styles and, you know, use them to inform what you're doing in your current performances. So, I'll just, so that in full disclosure, I work for Amherst Early Music Festival, and we're always looking for feedback, and I want this to be very transparent. If there was something that Amherst could have done to make it even better for you, what, could you think of anything? I guess I would have stayed another week. (laughs) I would have loved to have stayed another week because I felt like I was just getting a taste. Yeah, I mean, I went back to Julianne's master classes. I mean, uh, I've been going to that program since 2004, Mm -hmm. and I always learn something new from her. Oh, she's so incredible. Yeah, and she just, like, has it all memorized. (laughs) I know, (laughs) I know. She's just throwing out these incredible facts and I mean, of course, when she's singing in the master class, she yeah. just says, sing a phrase like this, yeah. and it's so easy for her. I think she invents a cadenza, like, right there I know, spot. I know. I don't know how she does it. It's amazing. So, going back just a little bit, you knew that you were coming to Ravinia before you went to Amherst. Can you tell us a little bit about the process for getting cast as a vocal fellow here at Ravinia? It's a typical application process, mm-hmm. so you... Um, submit your application and and your pre-screening recordings and then they schedule a live audition so I um, sang at the live audition quite a while ago. Was it in New York? It was in New York yeah. It was funny the audition, I was coming actually from a gig when Mm -hmm. I was going to the audition I I was doing these early morning kids shows Mm -hmm. um, called Operation Superpower Operation Operation Superpower I know right, they're all in the same uh, in the same wavelength, but yeah, it's called Operation Superpower, and it's a superhero opera. Mm -hmm. So I was coming from an early morning show. I had woken up at probably 5.30 that morning Mm. to go travel and do these shows, and I was traveling back from the show, and we had just enough time to drop me off at the audition. So my my fellow... um, superheroes dropped me off <laughs> at the we audition. We are superheroes. Us We're all superheroes, yeah. yeah, right? So we they dropped me off at the audition and my husband actually was with us and he played my audition. He's a pianist. So we went up and we, we sang two songs for them. It was a 10-minute audition and that was it. Is your husband here right now? He's. I wish he was here. Okay. No, my husband, he came through and visited but he's, okay. he's touring his own concert schedule right Have now. Have they ever cast a couple in this program, do you know? I don't know. Okay. I'm not That'd sure. That'd be interesting. But yeah. you probably would have to play for somebody else besides you. Yeah. Too, so, and then you might get jealous, and then there might be like <laughs> cut faces on the stage. <laughs> that is something that is really cool and unique about Ravinia that I was really drawn to. Yeah. Is this like collaborative relationship and this? So do you work with the same pianist the entire time? That's right. Okay. I'm paired with a pianist. Um, his name's Peter Walsh. He's okay. amazing. And um, so on our first day here, we started rehearsals yeah. for our first concert. And yeah, we've just been preparing con- concert repertoire for, so, for our time here. Uh, can you tell me um, what it was like to be in master classes with these people and to hear the caliber of the rest of the fellows? Like, and I just want to know what the intensity is like, because I've heard about other programs where it's like, 
you know, our death by Aria, like is on the first <laughs> right, day. Right, is right. there death by lead here? You know? <laughs> Fortunately, they don't do death by lead here. Um, it was sort of a gradual process of just hearing each other in rehearsals and concerts. There was no um, one concert where we, you know, yeah. where all Kevin sang Murphy for each like other. sits in a chair in the middle of yeah, the room. Right, yeah, right, right, right. Um, no, it was it was a very comfortable process. The the feeling at Ravinia in the Staines Institute is really so so generous and kind. And I was just so, I'm so happy to be here because it really is an incredible environment. Mm-hmm. It's been very intense. Mm-hmm. It's been a very intense three weeks. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's, that's why we do it. We want to learn as much as possible and keep growing as artists and musicians. And then you have William Bolcom coming up, is that yeah? Yeah, William Bolcom concert is Monday and Monday evening. And yeah, it's been really great. Uh Bolcom and Joan are here. Mm-hmm. And it has been Is Joan coaching you all? Yes. Wow. Isn't that so yeah. fun? it's such a... it's too bad there's not a public master class of that. I I'd know. Love to hear that. I'll have to suggest that. <laughs> So you've already had John Relier and Morris Robinson master classes, and yeah. did Kevin give a master class too? Is he it? did. Okay. He gave the first master class. Okay, and yeah. had you done that before, like public master classes? I have. Okay. Yeah, I have done a few public master classes, but it's always it's always interesting and a little nerve wracking to see. You know, you never know what they're going to talk about, what they're yeah. going to bring up, and um, but it's always a fun experience and. 
you just sort of take what you can from it. And yeah, it's interesting that you had two bases give master classes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been coming to these uh, events since I was in college, and the Steens Institute has brought in some amazing people. Of Krista Ludwig was here one year, Barbara Bonney, you know, Thomas Hampson, Thomas mm-hmm. Allen, mm-hmm. like. I, I mean, I learned so much coming to those things. Yeah. I'm, sh- I'm shocked, again, that there aren't more young people in the audience. I mean, they they happen right. at weird times of the day, like 2 o'clock on a mm-hmm. Monday or something like that. Mm-hmm. But still, like, I figured out a way to come down and hear that stuff, you know? Yeah. So what does your opera repertoire look like? Um, a lot of pants rolls. Yeah, yeah. Carabino, Stefano, um, Dido, though. Mm-hmm. I, like to, I like to add some powerful females in there yes. <laughs> to mix it up. But next next season, um, there are a lot of things in the works, but some highlights will be doing a concert with my my husband, um, Home Soiree Concert Series, where we'll perform a variety of repertoire, piano solo music, and also um, some music for us to play together. So what repertoire interests you the most, right? I know that you're just finishing like your formal training and now you got to like sort of define yourself as an artist but sure. like where do you see yourself in I don't know 15 years I think that early music is a really great path for me right now mm-hmm. and that's something I'm really passionate about so that's near future plan for me is to really pursue that um, of course I, I love opera and I love leader and mm-hmm. I love new music um, so I'm in the mindset of just go where the music takes you um, and make the most of it and have fun with it and play with the music. Yeah. And well, they ha- Amherst has not yet announced its uh, 2018 opera project, but I know it's going to be French, something like Rameau, and then oh, you wonderful. can maybe sing Fedra or something like that. Oh, you... that would be amazing. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Or the Charpentier Mede, have you ever looked at that? I haven't looked okay. at that, no. So Lorraine Hunt-Lieberson recorded oh. with William Christie the Charpentier Mede, and it is one of the best recordings of any opera. Oh. It's so good. Oh, and, I'm going to look that up yeah. right after. Like, actually, I have to say, like, I did want to ask, um, uh, these master classes, by the way, are available online. I think they're uh, uploaded to a, the Ravinia YouTube channel. But uh, did you get to sing for John or for uh, for Morris? I sang for John, yeah. Okay. We did um, Er der Herrlichste von allen okay. from Frauenliebe und Leben, yeah. which was really fun. and. He sort of talked to us about, you know, bringing out those specific adjectives and those words that really make the song pop and come to life. So yeah. we had a lot of fun playing around with that. Yeah, he's such a handsome guy. God, I've been listening, yeah. to, I've been listening to him sing since I was in college and like oh. looking at his headshot. Well, even his speaking voice, it's just yeah. so present and so incredible. Well, um, I know that you have a concert like in a couple hours, so you have I to do, go soon. I do. That okay, would be well, great. Thank you so much thank for doing so this. Thank you so much. This just in the two minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from Opera Land in the past week. Delivered in two minutes tops, the 41-year-old Boston Lyric Opera is without a home, and a recent study commissioned by the city of Boston says that puts the institution, quote, at risk. However, the opera company rejects that assessment, saying it's seen larger audiences as an itinerant group. Fort Worth Opera has announced the 2020 world premiere of The Last Dream of Frida and Diego, written by the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Milo Cruz and Latin Grammy winner, pianist, and classical composer Gabriela Lena 
Frank. Michael Sakir is Opera Memphis's new music director. Previously, he's been a guest music director for the company's 30 Days of Opera series. According to Zachary Wolf in the New York Times, visual artist William Kentridge has given Berg's Wozzeck a, quote, elegant and powerful operatic treatment, end quote, in a production that opened last Tuesday at the Salzburg Festival and will travel to the Met in the 2019-2020 season. The Slipped Disc website has released its top 10 lists of the best and worst press offices in classical music. The best is at La Scala in Milan, according to Slipped Disc. And on this day, or rather yesterday, happy birthday, Kathleen Battle, American soprano, she's 69. And it was also the death anniversary of Jules Massenet, who died in 1912. That's your two-minute drill. Live from Chicago, it's Opera Box Score with George, Tobias, and Oliver. Interesting two-minute drill. Lots to discuss here. First off, correction, I totally blew Kathleen Battle's age. Yeah? I can't add. She was born in 1948. Okay. So that would make her 70... No, 69. S- no. No, 1948. 1948 plus 60 is 2008, plus another 10. Oh. Wait, I am right. What? Yeah, she's six Yeah, she's six Yeah. Should we cut that part? No, it's fine. <laughs> this is real podcasting, folks. Man, one time I blow it and we're on a podcast, and we're not going to edit it out. All right, I never make those mistakes on the. No, air. no, no, no. You're the data guy. This yeah. really, this really throws me. Boston Lyric Opera is without a home. Their 2016 season was in four different venues. Sort of like New York City Opera had that experience. Exactly. Yeah. The city yeah. of Boston feels very uh, perturbed by that, but Esther Nelson, the BLO's general director, said, quote, those are not our words. What does risk mean? The risk is that we are not reaching the potential or can reach our potential and that our audience is unable to see the potential that we're capable of reaching as demonstrated last season. What she's talking about, last season, while subscriptions dropped off, mm-hmm. single ticket sales up 32%, overall attendance has increased Highest grossing season since 2008. Not quite sure why the city of Boston has a problem. Yeah, I think that subscription model is not long for this earth. Um, And even places that do offer subscriptions are allowing people to choose like three performances to make a subscription. They just want your name, essentially. They want your name and your email address. They want to know that they can go to you with their marketing. But uh, as far as like actual people actually buying like eight operas or 12 operas, I don't think it's happening anymore. Surely we want people to go to the opera, not because it's, quote, their night to go on their subscription, but because they really want to see the show. Yeah. But also it's uh, forcing people to subscribe gives you a little leeway with sticking in a stinker. You know, if there's like one show in the season Mm -hmm. that you know is not that great, people have bought tickets to it anyway, you know. But let me just say this, that... um, Chicago Opera Theater and New York City Opera, are, I, I realize, are both going through these this problem. Uh, they don't have a home. And Chicago Opera Theater is experimenting with different venues. They're probably going to end up at the Studebaker, which is a renovated, old-timey theater. Uh, but they experimented with the swimming pool. They experimented with uh, a movie theater. And I think that model, as unsustainable as it is for 
maintaining a steady audience does give an opera company an opportunity to program things they normally wouldn't program, smaller things. And I do think that we disservice, we do disservice to a wide range of repertoire, especially for me, Baroque music, but also chamber operas like William Bolcom's Lucrezia and what's the Bastinello that gets paired with it, you know? Right. There are pieces like that which actually need to be heard in smaller spaces that might need the talent uh, that a major opera company can afford, like getting something like Paul Appleby to be in your show, you know? Whilst, and artistic integrity and name recognition of a company, you know? I think that's a, a really good point, right? Is that if you look at the big opera houses in this country and the era in which they were built, which is early 20th century, they're doing pieces in there that when originally composed were not for venues that large, right? So, like, the opera houses came of the age, essentially, of Puccini, mm -hmm. early 20th century. But how do you do Baroque opera in a house built for Puccini? How do you do Mozart in a house mm -hmm. built for Puccini? Wagner was so obsessed that that's why he built his own opera house, just for his work. So I agree with you that we are doing many pieces in the standard rep a disservice by constantly putting them in the same venue. And we need to do more to get these operas into different locations. Now, the problem is, if you're Lyric and you do have 2,500 people over eight performances, how do you accommodate all those people when you're doing it in venue A, which is one shape and size, and then venue B, which is another shape and size, and then venue C, which is another shape and size? So the solution is, I forget, there's some, maybe it's Kansas or some other city that has built a performing arts complex that has three theaters, one for chamber, one for midsize, and one for grand, you know, and a recital hall. But that's what we need to do. We need to get all of our millionaires together and say, in every city, we need one of these. What if you could do that State in of the a art. single venue? Would there be a way to it's build... Like shrink an... the theater. Exactly. Yeah. To build an opera house whereby... The stage, the walls, the acoustics, the size of the auditorium were completely configurable, and they like through hydraulics or pneumatics or something like it. Could, it was a transformer. I was gonna say transformers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Did I tell you I saw Transformers Five? By the way, uh, it was really see that. bad. Yeah, it it's really just bad. too much explosions. But I yeah. saw Spider Man with Tom Holland. That kid is awesome. That Tom Holland. That boy. looked dreadful. That it movie. was really good, actually. And so was Atomic Blonde. It was very good. I saw Dunkirk. Did you see Dunkirk? <sighs> that was so upsetting, that movie. I was like, I felt like I needed to pee the entire time, so. <laughs> um, I am fascinated by this opera at Fort Worth in 2020, The Last Dream of Frida and Diego. Now, that's a artistic relationship which has had certainly books written about it, probably plays, and now playwright Nilo Cruz, Latin Grammy winner Gabriela Lina Frank coming together to write this piece. This is a huge co-production, by the way. First of all, it's in Spanish. We'll mm -hmm. talk about it in a second. Co-commission, San Diego Opera, University of Texas, Austin, and DePaul University, which is in Indiana. Yeah. That's a lot of cooks. Yeah, well, it's just a lot of money coming from different places. I wish them so much luck. They are, uh, I feel, I mean, Fort Worth is the place to do something like that. It's but... true. Um, they want to, like I just said a couple minutes ago, they want to include more people in opera. And I think this is a great way to do that. It doesn't mean it's going to be a success. It doesn't mean that people are going to show up and all of a sudden fall in love with opera, but it's a step in the right direction. And we need lots of these types of projects, not just one. The libretto is in Spanish. 
And the press conference announcing this was in two languages. Nice. Which I think is totally cool. I have no problem with libretto being in Spanish because we see operas in different languages all the time. Exactly. Exactly. Frankly, we should probably be producing more operas written in Spanish beyond Farthuela. Well, I suspect that we're going to need those, like they have at the Met, uh, surtitle options that can change language. Because they're yeah. going to be, uh, they're in Texas, they're going to get a lot of Mexicans if they're not deported to come see this show. And they're going to probably want to read it in Spanish too. So, those super title systems, by the way, are awesome yeah. and extremely expensive. I'm sure. I'm sure. What else from the oh, two? Oh, William Kendridge. Row? William Kendridge, yeah. of course. I'm a yeah. huge fan. Yeah, I saw the nose. I'm like, that's not an opera I would ever choose to see, but it was an HD broadcast. Okay. And it was visually extremely compelling. And I think what you're about to say is, what do we, how do we feel about, you know, somebody that doesn't have their chops as an opera director? Where did you get your degree from? For, to, to direct? Northwestern, to, Okay, dude. for Northwestern, yeah. <laughs> so somebody who didn't, you know, study the art of, you know, stagecraft, you know, how what right did they have to get up there and d- direct in the biggest houses? All right, you know? so let me ask you this. Yeah. What do we think about directors who didn't get their chops in the theater? What right do they have to be directing? <laughs> That's what I just said. You know, um, one of my favorite movies of the year that it came out, um, I, which I don't remember what year it is anymore, was A Single Man by Tom Ford. Um, and it reeked of Tom Ford. Like, the whole movie was like, this is a movie by, you know, a designer, by a costume, a fashion designer, you know? Everything was so, you know, perfectly placed and immaculate. And what does he so design? Clothing. Shirts, he everything. designs clothes, yeah. Suits, yeah. Okay. menswear, right. you know? I just went to Uniqlo the other day. Yeah, yeah, not the same thing. So it was so beautiful to look at, and he had amazing performances. Um, he had amazing actors. He had Julianne Moore and um, Colin Firth, so that's hard for them to do anything wrong, you know? But the movie was so gorgeous to look at. Um, so, you know, if William Ketteridge has the team in that show that can support what he's doing and then give us something really beautiful to look at, William Kentridge, again, South African artist. He has done animated art, uh, projections art. He's done drawings. I'm sure he's done painting as well, but multimedia and mixed media artist. The Nose, of course, as Oliver mentioned, the Shostakovich Opera. He also did Lulu at the Metropolitan Opera. That was at Lyric here in Chicago that Lulu? as well. Yeah, I missed it. The um, Berg Opera. And now Vatsek at the Salzburg Festival coming to the Met in 2020. Even just looking at the production photos here, we'll put that on our website. You always say that. <laughs> Look at the production photos? Yeah. It's important, man. Yeah, but, but you drop in links, and there, and so people have to click through to find these things as opposed to, like, putting images actually on the website. I do. No, no, I'll put the, I'll put the image on the website. Okay, good. Yeah, I'm going to put a link to the and the Jet article. Okay. And Kara Dugan's website. I really, and yes, thank you. I am fascinated by this man's aesthetic. It feels so perfect for Berg's music. It's like raw, scratchy, jittery. Yeah, distressed, yeah. Distressed. Yeah. I would love to know if you're a singer in one of his productions, and you're talking about like character, objective, need, motivation, what's that conversation like? 
Besides his like South African accent. Yeah. Sorry, South African <laughs> with, with with him accent. Uh, in in Botsek. So and what's that conversation like though? You're you're working with someone who is trained as a visual artist. Hey, remind us where this production is going on. Um, well, it's in Salzburg, then it's going to the Met. There is also uh, a note here that it's a co-production with Canadian Opera Company in Toronto. Okay. And let's Opera assume Australia. let's assume that he has a good team and maybe has an AD who will help the the performers with that. He does. You know? Well, he has an associate director yeah. on the production, Luke Dewitt. Okay. But you know, me. I mean, I like I said, I loved the nose. So who's to say that he doesn't have those skills or he hasn't developed those skills, you know? I mean, hey. Let's get him on the show and ask him. Opera, <laughs> as we said earlier on the show, this is a complex art form. Yeah. It is a visual art form as much as it is a musical art form. And Kendridge is certainly not the first visual artist to direct opera, right? David Hockney hasn't directed it, but he has designed it. Yeah. You mentioned Tom Ford, fashion yeah. designer. I'm trying to think of other people. Yeah, there's... I'm sure our listeners can come up with names. Exactly. Leave a comment on our yeah, Facebook post. As well. So maybe you and me do a hot date at the Met HD in two years. <laughs> We're still alive Mark then. my calendar. So. Yeah, exactly. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Thanks for joining us this week for the podcast edition of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. We're going to be back live on the air in September. Until then, we're feeding you slow drip style some podcasts. Thanks to Kara Dugan as well. Yes, wonderful interview. Hanging out with us. You got a good color bag called this. Well, week. I just want to say a couple of things to people to think with, think about for their summer. One, if you're in Chicago, check out uh, Janai Brueger singing Beethoven's uh, Ninth Symphony at Grand Park Music Festival this weekend, the 18th and the 19th. It's free. And she's amazing. Uh, if you're interested in me uh, and Oliver Camacho, since this is a podcast that can be a bit unethical, I'm in The Food Show by the Neo Futurists. And I've been getting great reviews, I have to say. <laughs> and last you're but, not going to get your head out of this no. studio, dude. It's going to be so big. And last but not least, I'll, probably sometime in September, we're going to do a show where we pick our uh, most anticipated productions of 2017-18 season. So you start thinking about that yourselves. And so we do that show. We'd love to hear from you as well what you're looking forward to from all over the world. I really want to see your show at the Neo You better. I really know. Seriously, yeah. I really do. Is there a matinee? No. It's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 730 in Avondale. It's not far from here. It's not at the Neo Futurist normal spot. So... That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general manager at WNUR. Our host is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and do us a favor by leaving a review. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera, except during those two minutes when you're watching the solar eclipse next week. Speaking of which, we're on vacation on Monday, August 21st, but we're back the following Monday, August 28th, with another podcast-only version of our show. 
We're going to have an interview with Thompson Street Opera Executive Director Claire Divisio. More opera headlines and insider opinions. See you then.